As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Thank you for listening to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And you can also register there for the chance to win a free book. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. But now for today's show. In this series, C.S. Lewis expert Professor Alistair McGrath is delving into the Space Trilogy, arguably one of Lewis's lesser-known works of fiction. We'll be exploring the three books in the trilogy, Out of the Silent Planet, Perilandra and That Hideous Strength. Alistair, thank you so much for joining us again. Well, it's a great pleasure to be back. I look forward to this very much. Alistair, we're going to be talking about the second book of the space trilogy, Perilandra, and we've looked a little bit about some of the sort of general themes, but would you perhaps give us a little bit of a brief plot summary of Perilandra and just perhaps a little reminder that there may be some spoilers here and there, so perhaps you might want to go and have a look at the book yourself. Well, absolutely, and I'll just hit a few of the main lines of narrative, which are very, very interesting. Again, Ransom is a key figure in this, and after his return from Mars, at the end of the Silent Planet, he now receives, if you like, a kind of new new mission, I guess, from um, the angelic ruler of Mars, and he is to go to um, Perilandra, which is Venus, of course. And the reason he's going there is that, uh, in effect, something has gone wrong there, and it has to be undone. And the the real issue is that um, there is is the there is, in fact, something happening to Perilandra, which means that things are about to go wrong there. And so really, it's all to do with um, the return of Weston to the scene and the growing realization that uh, Perilandra is in danger. And Ransom, in effect, um, turns out to be a savior and is able to rescue the situation, and uh, after which Ransom goes back to Earth. Now, there's a lot more detail in between this. But the key point is that we find, um, in effect, a, a repetition of some of the major themes, particularly key characters, Ransom and Weston. Now, one of the things um, that is perhaps not at all important to the story um, is the dedication at the beginning of Perilandra, where Lewis dedicates it to some ladies at Wantage. Do we know who they are, why they're significant, and does it bear any sort of significance at all to the story, or is it completely unrelated? Well, we do know that they were. Um, The ladies at Wantage, and Wantage is a town just south of Oxford, 
And in there, there was a convent, an Anglican group of Anglican nuns called the Community of St. Mary the Virgin, and they lived in Wantage. And it's not quite clear what Lewis's connection with them was. Um, I think they had written to him about something, but certainly for some reason, Lewis knew of them and respected them and so dedicated to them. Now, Lewis often invites his readers to engage with deeper philosophical and theological questions through his fiction. We've obviously seen a lot of these ideas in the previous episodes, but what are some of those central questions and ideas that are raised in Perilandra? And I guess significantly, how does Lewis begin to address some of these? I think one of the questions that is raised is this very important theological question, which is, could the fall have been prevented? Um, And if so, who does that? And leading on to the second major question, which is, um, supposing the fall doesn't actually happen, well, what does the world look like? What what does a world without the fall look like? And the only way you can really deal with that is by telling a story, and in fact, illustrating what this world would look like. And that's what Lewis does here. I think, for me, in many ways, Perilandra is about counterfactual thinking. And what I mean by that is, uh, it's about saying, supposing this never happened, what difference would it make? And the reason people ask those questions is that very often by saying, let's assume this didn't happen, then think what the world would be like, that helps you to appreciate the fact that this did happen and its significance. So it's a very helpful um, theme. And I think that Lewis really brought this out um, very clearly in this particular book. Well, just thinking about some of the characters in this book, we've, we've already seen that Lewis said in his preface to Perilandra that none of the human characters are, are kind of based on particular human beings. They're, they're entirely fictitious. They're, they're not allegorical. Um, we're not entirely sure whether that's true or not. Um, but are there any other characters that we haven't explored in the previous episodes that you think are worth mentioning here? And, and I guess related to that, did he have particular people or ideas in mind as he wrote these stories about those characters? Well, there are characters that appear um, in this um, story. One of them is the Green Lady. Now, that, that's quite an important image, which Lewis would have known well from his um, Renaissance um, literature background. And, of course, we find similar figures appearing in the Chronicles of Narnia. And, of course, there are, there are also similar figures in uh, J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And very often, these are figures which represent nature or natural powers. Um, so we do find some new figures um, coming into this. Um, but really, I think one of the key themes here is that that um, Lewis is a kind of way asking us to imagine a world which we've kind of way begun to experience in the previous novel, but it's a different one, and look at a slightly different question which emerges from this narrative's particular focus. Uh, one of the characters that I thought was slightly developed as well is the narrator. He seems to take a slightly more significant role in this book, particularly in the first couple of chapters, doesn't he? Well, he does. I mean, the, the narrator um, expresses opinions, um, um, uh, saying, oh, you know, um, some things are good, some things are bad. And actually, in particular, when Ransom actually appears, um, the narrator doesn't really seem very impressed by this. And <laughs> One of the questions is, what what are the issues? And of course, maybe one of the fears here is that um, Ransom was going to bring back with him something that would contaminate this world. So I think that's a 
a very important thing to to, fear, to see. I think what Lewis is doing here is really just saying, look, the narrator of a, of, of a novel sets the tone, tells you what to look out for. And in many ways, it's a literary device giving us a sense of some of the issues that are going to be addressed here. So Lewis, if you, if you like, is using this narrator to map out some things to watch out for in the book as a whole. I mean, one of the things that he says almost in a kind of passing line is um, he sort of speaks of uh, Ransom. He says, you damned magician. He says it all in his head. But I mean, does he think that Ransom is a magician? And if so, does that sort of raise bigger questions about what Lewis thought of magic? Is is that something that is kind of tied up in this um, in this trilogy? Because um, obviously one of the characters that emerges in the third book, that hideous strength, is Merlin, who is clearly a magician. Is is Lewis trying to say something about magic here? Well, he may well be. Um, Lewis, of course, would have been familiar with the Renaissance view of magic, which saw magic actually as going in two possible directions. One of them is simply understanding the world better in order to be able to make use of natural processes to do things better. And that was seen as kind of a neutral. And then, of course, there was a sort of oppressive or um, almost like demonic form of magic, which is about, in effect, influencing people in certain ways, often very destructive ways. And Lewis saw the first of these as being okay, and the second as not being okay. And it may well be that um, what we're seeing here is Lewis opening up two different ways of thinking about magic. One is simply a neutral way of making sense of the world, which actually can lead to some good outcomes. And another is, in effect, um, taking control of things, um, um, demeaning people, uh, mesmerizing people, this, these sort of things. And it may well be that um, Lewis is um, putting in, in the narrator's mouth this, this concern that maybe Western is bringing back with some, some, some ways of manipulating the world and people which might be detrimental to this, this world. Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I have a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time, and some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Inti Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. That's premierinsight.org forward slash C.S. Lewis. Thank you. Alistair, we've looked quite a lot at Western's beliefs in in, in the previous episode, but these seem to have developed somewhat in Perilandra, either through his own study or perhaps through some sort of demonic possession. Would you just give us a brief summary of some of what es uh, Western espouses in Perilandra? Well, this is quite complex because in um, either Silent Planet, Western doesn't really talk about what we might call spirituality at all. 
But here he seems to have got into some conversations with people on earth and is now very interested in spiritualism. Uh, and he, he, in effect, makes it very clear that he used to think it was nonsense, so that's perhaps why he didn't talk about Malkandra. Or maybe Malkandra has kind of made him receptive to this. Um, basically, it's all about um, you know how you understand the relation of the living and the dead. And it's it, he almost seems to be saying that he's receptive to a spiritual way of thinking, but not in a sort of, um, Christian way or anything like that. It's much more to do with, um, you know, an interest in spiritual phenomena like seances, for example. He's very critical of seances for, for example, automatic writing, that kind of thing. But basically, he's clearly become interested in these things and wants to explore them further. Would Lewis have been trying to make a point through this? Did he have an opinion on spiritualism? Well, Lewis, I think, knew of spiritualism. Um, it, it was very common in the 1920s. Um, some of Arthur Conan Doyle's novels written in the 1920s actually do talk about this. So if you like, it was quite a, a cultural phenomenon. And maybe Lewis felt that by, by in effect, portraying Ransom, who up to this point is quite rational, as heading off in this direction, saying, look, this can happen to anyone. And so clearly, one of the things that's going to be explored in this novel is the relationship between the spiritual science and various things like that. So Lewis, if you'd like, is, is introducing this debate into the novel by depicting one of its central characters, having kind of we got interested in this line of discussion. And does Western spirituality, this kind of goal of becoming pure spirit, does that echo a pre-existing notion? Or is, again, is that something that Lewis has made up? I think that Lewis is picking up on one strand of thought um, and really is um, trying to make the point that um, to believe in a spiritual world really doesn't doesn't mean that the universe is meaningful or anything like that. It's just, it's just saying, oh, there is this world beyond the grave and we can get in touch with it. Um, but it, it doesn't help us understand meaning or significance or indeed give us hope. And at several points... Um, um, you see these kind of ideas being intensified by Western, who clearly doesn't believe that the universe has any meaning at all. So I think that uh, there's an interesting interplay here between Ransom and, and Western, you know, about what this is all about. And Western is very, very clearly um, saying that, that there's no point to the universe at all. Well, one of the words that Ransom uses in reference to Western is a word we've, we talked about earlier, scientification. Would you just say a little bit about scientification? And, and was that a process that was kind of being expounded during Lewis's day? It was, uh, under various names. We, we would probably now call it scientism. But certainly this idea that science is the only reliable guide to the world and science is the only grounds of hope for the future of the human race. Those are both quite um, common during the 1940s, 19, sorry, 1920s, 1930s. And I think Lewis brings this discussion into this novel. That's a very interesting discussion to have. So Lewis, I think, really is picking up on something that was quite significant and indeed is still significant today. People like Richard Dawkins, for example, do echo very similar ideas today. So perhaps that helps us to, to really connect this particular novel with debates that are really quite contemporary for us. 
Yeah, and we've already touched quite a lot on how Lewis explores this relationship between science and religion. But is but is this sort of mention of scientism, scientification, is that another nod to this perceived conflict? And is Lewis perhaps trying to say that there doesn't need to be a conflict? I think that what Lewis is doing here is saying there are some people who um, do not accept that uh, that science and the spiritual have any connection at all. He's also saying that believing in the spiritual doesn't actually necessarily give you meaning or hope, but he's really, in effect, trying to recognize some very strident cultural divergences and say it doesn't need to be like this. We can, we can kind of find some way of bringing these things back together and holding them together, and that, that for Lewis is quite an important thing to do. Now, the picture that Weston gives of the kind of meaningless uh, meaninglessness of the real universe, the life in the Rhine, the afterlife, um, I won't go into great detail, but it but it's pretty miserable. Is, is Lewis basing his philosophical outlook on a particular theory that he's aware of? Or again, is he just kind of bringing a few things into bear and putting it into Weston's mouth? Well, this is almost certainly J.N.D. Haldane, a very well-known uh, Marxist scientist of this period, who were strongly materialist and in effect said science is the only hope for the future. In fact, the best hope for the human race is to put them in a spaceship and send them off somewhere so they can in effect start all over again. And that theme actually is there uh, at several points in, in Lewis's narratives. So some of his readers would have recognized, ah, I see who Lewis is getting at here. But the general idea science is the only reliable source of knowledge, science is the only hope for the human race would have been quite widespread in Western culture um, in the 20s and 30s. And that's obviously something that's expanded even more in the next novel, That Hideous Strength, isn't it? Very much so, very much. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with me, Ruth Jackson. Discover more about Lewis by visiting premierunbelievable.com, where you can also find lots of great articles, resources and podcasts. And do register there for the chance to win a free book. That's premierunbelievable.com. If you enjoy listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast, please do consider rating and reviewing it. Thank you for listening and see you next time.